Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the Republican Party's embrace of authoritarianism as they blindly defend Trump from the most serious possible charges under the Espionage Act, while his GOP campaign rivals trip over each other, promising him pardons. Vowing to go after Biden and what he calls, quote, the Biden crime family as, quote, the most corrupt presidency in U.S. history, Trump promises to, quote, obliterate the deep state, telling his adoring crowd of donors that, quote, I'm the only one who can save this nation. In contrast, the pathetic refrain from the progressive opposition is that Trump is not above the law, when what Trump is really saying as he channels a fascist dictator is that he is the law. Joining us is Thomas Edsel, who has written a weekly opinion column for the New York Times since 2011. Before joining the Times, he covered national politics for the Washington Post. He's the author of The New Politics of Inequality, Building Red America, and The Age of Austerity. He teaches at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism, and his latest book is The Point of No Return, American Democracy at the Crossroads. Then we'll speak with the cultural historian Jackson Lears, the Board of Directors Distinguished Professor of History at Rutgers University and the editor of Raritan. His books include Something for Nothing, Luck in America, and Fables of Abundance, A Cultural History of Advertising in America. His latest book is Animal Spirits, The American Pursuit of Vitality from Camp Meeting to Wall Street, which Cornell West describes as, quote, a grand narrative of animal spirits and popular vitalism that takes us from the heights of William James, John Maynard Keynes, Norman Mailer, and Jane Bennett to the depths of grassroots spiritualism and countercultural activism. His ecological vision and radical democratic politics speak directly to our moment of spiritual decay and market idolatry. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Thomas Edsel, who has written a weekly opinion column for the New York Times since 2011. Before joining the Times, he covered national politics for the Washington Post and is the author of The New Politics of Inequality, Building Red America and The Age of Austerity. He teaches at the Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism and his latest book is The Point of No Return, American Democracy at the Crossroads. Welcome to Background Briefing, Thomas Edsel. Good to be here with you. 
Well, thanks for joining us, Thomas. And uh, your book makes the case that the country may be headed over a cliff, and it argues that the election of Donald Trump was the most serious threat to American, the American political system since the Civil War. So does that mean if Trump is re-elected, then that we go over the cliff? Uh, it's quite possible. Uh, Trump's agenda for 2025, if elected, is really to eviscerate the uh, civil service to establish a fully politically appointed Trump loyal uh, senior executive service, in effect, uh, to establish a further a kind of a chief executive with much more power than is now uh, dele- now authorized. Uh, he and his allies have been working very hard on developing plans to, to really alter the nature of American democracy and make it much more of a centralized, more authoritarian kind of system. Uh, whether he gets elected is the big question. And it looks right now I would not bet on him, but he still has a shot. Well, in terms of the Civil War, of course, after the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln made his famous speech, government of the people, for the people, and by the people shall not perish from this earth. What Trump was saying on Tuesday night after his arrest and arraignment at his Bedminster Golf Club, where he railed against what had just happened uh, that day to a crowd of donors... Much of what he said was so frightening that I just don't understand why the alarm is not being sounded across the country, let alone across the world. Uh, Frankly, uh, neither do I. Uh, It's extraordinary that in a matter of the past eight, less than eight years, uh, we've had a president and the the head of a political party, one of only two political parties really in this country, who is off the charts as far as democracy goes, as far as basic norms. Uh, And it's been the case, I don't know how to explain that, except that there seems to have been kind of a numbing of the American electorate uh, that began with the Trump campaign and then his early terms in office, where he he repeatedly lied, distorted facts, uh, and, and did things that were way beyond the pale, and people just slowly came to seemingly, seemingly to accept that. It suggests that American democracy is really not as strong and vital a force as as one would hope. And uh, it, but it is a, a extraordinary phenomenon to people who have been following democracy over the years to see this sort of sudden implosion without. Any really that what's really striking is that there's no real there's no like crisis taking place. There's no economic crisis. There's no uh, well. There's, some people claim there's a cultural crisis, but there really is not anything that where the bottom line is that, that people are going to have a, uh, a terrible time. It's not like the Civil War where there was, there were whole economies and whole policies at stake, slavery particularly, and the closest. After that was in the 1890s when there was a, a, a basically a conflict between industrial states and agricultural states that led to the battle over silver and William Jennings Bryan, and there was almost as much polarization 
But again, that was a really a substantive conflict over two different kind of economic approaches to what the country ought to be. That, that, there isn't that now, but we do still have a, a, a divide that is extraordinary. And this is a divide that I don't know whether you can necessarily accuse Trump of creating the divide, but he certainly exacerbates the divide. And essentially, when you say there's no external reasons why America should be in crisis, the crisis is Trump himself. And his former chief of staff, General Kelly, recently said that Trump is scared, I can't use the word, something bleep bleepless is about as close as I can get to it. So I'm wondering, you know, the New York Times is carrying a story today, the radical strategy behind Trump's promise to go after Biden. That's a very polite way of putting it, frankly. Trump on Tuesday at this incredibly inflammatory Mussolini-like speech that he made, he said that Biden is the most corrupt president in U.S. history. He said he was going to go after the Biden crime family and obliterate the deep state. You know, you have to pause for a minute, Thomas, and realize what he's saying. What's really incredible is that he wants to do just what he's accusing the Biden administration of doing. He contends that this is a political, that the indictments are, that he now faces are part of a political attack on him. He's saying, basically, he's going to openly conduct a political attack politicizing the Justice Department to the full extent possible. Uh, It's really an incredibly two-faced proposition that he is selling the American public. Uh, And, well, at any rate, it it just, uh, if he were to win office, which is not out of the question, I would not bet on it, but I would not be totally confident betting against it. He, uh, he and his allies are prepared to do things that would really tear asunder the, uh, the, the notion of the fabric of American democracy and the fabric of sort of the American consensus. He has thrived on conflict, and what he does is just make conflict worse and worse and worse. Uh, so we'll see. Well, the extraordinary thing is uh, the more you learn about his corruption and possibly his treason, the more popular he becomes with uh, the Republican Party and the more they double down in support of him. I mean, Senator Lindsey Graham is just all over the place talking about how they want to kill this guy off the, the, the Democrats and how he's the greatest champion of conservatism. I mean, there's nothing conservative about him. It's all... Again, I don't want to harp on this speech he made on Tuesday, but when he said, I'm the only one who can save this nation, I mean, apart from it being extraordinary hyperbole, it has the whiff of a dictator, does it not? Oh, it does. He's used that kind of phrasing a number of times. Uh, where I am the one who can uh, save you. I am the one who can restore uh, America to what it was. Uh, he has personalized his 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 being in a way that is is in the tradition of Mussolini, uh, of Hitler, of basically of all dictators. He he is uh, 
it's just you know it's it's like an incredible phenomenon that you just can't keep repeating. Is so it, it just off the charts. He, uh, uh, but what is really incredible is one that he has the command of a of a political party, one of the two major political parties in the country. He has the support of so many, uh, especially in the House, elected officials, and he's got the support of a majority of Republican voters who have somehow put their identity into him, and they see him as reflecting their their goals, their agenda, their values. And this is a guy who whose values and goals are are just plain. Uh, scuzzy in the worst possible way. Well, I think it's a mistake to just to simply say that Trump, as many of the pundits on TV, particularly the legal analysts, are saying that this indictment and arrest shows that he's not above the law. That's not the point. What Trump is saying is, I am the law. There's no question and if he's back in power, He's going to try to make that turn that into a reality. His his agenda, if reelected, is to alter the whole system of uh, how would you say uh, not just justice, but the whole uh, way uh, crime and the Department of Justice and all the federal agencies are conduct their business so that they would not be bound by the rules of the law. Uh, and he he wants to do that, but he's not alone in that. I have to say, uh, Ron DeSantis has many similar uh, ideas about, and he's really the number two candidate as we look at this right now for the nomination. DeSantis's agenda is very similar, and if you look closely at DeSantis's proposals for politicizing the federal bureaucracy and politicizing the whole the network of the executive branch, he, he is, uh, is, is, he's really uh, uh, Trump's brother in, in, in his agenda. Well, Thomas Edsel, there is no middle ground between democracy and totalitarianism. And if we are on the road to totalitarianism, which seems to be what the GOP has decided, they're modelling themselves on Viktor Orban's takeover of, of Hungary in terms of taking over the judiciary and the media. Now, they haven't taken over the media, but they do have a powerful echo chamber which in which maybe up to half of American the American public seem to be basically immune to facts or information. And what I find really troubling is that as you point out in your new book, Thomas Edsel, The Point of No Return, American Democracy at the Crossroads, is that in terms of the Democrats, rather than provide, quoting you, rather than provide a better story, the progressive left calls people names if they can't march to a radically new tune fast enough. No wonder that even people of color moved in 2020 towards a right that offers understanding and a sense of community. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about how that sense that Trump has captured can be recaptured. I mean, it's an absolute crying shame that the Democratic Party, the so-called Party of Working Americans, 
lost so many white working class voters in 2016 to Trump, but they're not necessarily winning them back. And we're talking about an existential crisis here in terms of American democracy itself and whether or not we are going to continue being a democracy or become a form of American fascism. What's your sense of whether or not the Democratic Party and its leader, Joe Biden, get it? Do they see this freight train out of control heading towards them? I think Biden has some sense of this, although I think he's made some substantial errors strategically. But the real problem the Democratic Party has is, as you point out, the party claims to be the party of the working man and woman, Jill and Joe, six-pack, or whatever you want to say. But the reality is the party has become increasingly elitist. The the, the college-educated whites are now becoming more and more democratic, while non-college whites, the working class among whites, is becoming more Republican. And there are starting to be defections among black and Hispanic non-college voters uh, to the Republican Party. That's a real bad sign for the Democratic Party. And what it does is this shift in the demographics of the Democratic Party make it vulnerable to the charge that it is an elitist party. That is one of the cores of the Republican accusations against liberals and Democrats is that they are elitist. The problem is that the Democrats and liberals are confirming that by the very character of who they're drawing in and who they're getting their support from. It's so it is a it's a sort of a vicious circle taking place. Uh, and then there's a strong case that the issues that the Democrats have really focused on are not the kind of issues that uh working class, black, white, and Hispanic voters really care about, but much more elitist, socially cultural issues. And that reinforces this uh, this division. On top of that, uh, there's nothing you can do, do about this, but the, one of the biggest growth areas for the Democrats is among non-religious voters, uh, which is incidentally the, the fastest growing religious characterization in, or demographic group in America. It's a great source of new votes. But again, it sort of takes the Democratic Party out of the mainstream and puts it uh, on a, a, a left elite track. Uh, so that I, uh, it's not an optimistic picture. Well, you've written that the brakes on extremism are failing, with Donald Trump gaining strength in his bid for renomination as many of the states continue to shift to the right. Of course, that was a strategy going back to 2010 on the part of the Republicans when Obama was riding high and the Democrats were feeling great about having this reformer in the presidency. The Republicans took over an enormous number of states and have created these supermajorities. In the meantime, they've taken over the Supreme Court. In fact, Lynn Leo and the Federalists have taken it over and now you've got a Federalist judge who's manifestly unqualified hearing Trump's case. So what kind of an irony is that, Thomas? Well, you've had uh, the Republicans have been very effective at what you could call the ground war. They, they uh, planned out and prepared for the election of 2010 well before the election began. Karl Rove 
uh, and his allies really were working on winning states, winning state legislatures especially, but also governorships in a way that the wave election of, 19, of 2010 gave them a real opportunity, and they were prepared to take that opportunity. Democrats have not been, until very recently, have really let their control and influence at the state and local level wane and get, get weaker and weaker. Republicans have also focused much more intensely, and especially the Federalist Society and a guy named Leonard Leo at the Senate, at, at the uh, Federalist Society, have, and uh, Senate uh, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell have been devoted to the idea of taking over the courts as much as possible, especially the Supreme Court. If you've got the Supreme Court, you've got one third of government right there. The Senate is already biased in favor of Republicans in terms of the kind of the, where the where the seats are, and the po- rural populations have a real advantage, which gives the GOP an advantage. So that's one and a half. So you really have the three branches of the government. They they have a a very strong. They've got one out of three. They're well they well positioned in an in an in another with the Senate. And they're very competitive in the House. So the, 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 inst- the Republicans have understood institutional power much better, more more effectively than, than the Democrats in recent years. Well, Thomas Edsel, I'm afraid we've run out of time, but I appreciate you joining us here today. My pleasure. Good to talk to you. Likewise. And again, I've been speaking with Thomas Edsel, who has written a weekly opinion column for The New York Times since 2011. Before joining the Times, he covered national politics for the Washington Post, and he's the author of The New Politics of Inequality, Building Red America, and The Age of Austerity. He teaches at the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, and his latest book is The Point of No Return, American Democracy at the Crossroads. We're going to take a brief station break and back speaking with the cultural historian Jackson Lears about his latest book, Animal Spirits, The American Pursuit of Vitality from Camp Meeting to Wall Street. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Jackson Lears, who's the Board of Governors Distinguished Professor of History at Rutgers University and the editor of Raritan. His books include Something for Nothing, Luck in America, and Fables of Abundance, A Cultural History of Advertising in America. And his latest book out next week is Animal Spirits, The American Pursuit of Vitality from Camp Meeting to Wall Street. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jackson Lears. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Jackson. And, and of course, the title of your book, uh, Animal Spirits, refers to remarks by John Maynard Keynes referring to capitalist investors, animal spirits. And John Maynard Keynes, the economist, features heavily in the book. So what is this connection between camp meeting and Wall Street? 
Well, I, I started off getting interested in this project with, uh, during and after the crash of 08, when Keynes came back into public policy uh, discourse, uh, and his, his ideas had a, uh, supposedly been discredited for a while, but suddenly everyone was discovering uh, that, in fact, what Keynes called animal spirits really did matter, matter to uh, investors. And what Keynes meant was, you know, what he called a spontaneous urge to action. He said, you know, it wasn't investors weren't animated and motivated by a uh, uh, by a calculating rationality. They were uh, they were instead uh, motivated by a kind of uh, impulse to spontaneous vitality, a kind of visceral uh, sense that, by golly, this this thing is going to work. I just feel it in in my bones uh, long term. which is which is an impulse that can't be can't be calculated, uh, and the, the spontaneous urge to action I I realized uh, was was much more complicated than than uh, conventional neoclassical uh, or behavioral uh, economists uh, understood. They wanted to see it basically as just something that could be quantified in surveys, uh, as we're used to seeing done with confidence. So I decided I wanted to get into the larger meanings uh, of the the phrase animal spirits and the concept. And I I discovered as I I dug back uh, through uh, the centuries of Anglo-American history that I studied, uh, that there was both a personal and a cosmic meaning, you might say. The personal meaning to animal spirits was the link between body and soul, uh, between matter and spirit, or between body and mind, vitality in short, personal vitality. But there was also a cosmic meaning uh, that could be associated or inferred from animal spirits, and that was the power that animates the universe. And that is the the kind of the notion of a kind of life force, whether you call it God, spirit, soul, uh, or ultimately capital uh, itself plays that role uh, as this kind of life force uh, in modern uh, capitalistic economies. Uh, what a former student of mine, Jean McCarraher, calls the religion of modernity, uh, capitalism, uh, running on credo, I believe, credit. Uh, all of these etymological connections are significant. So uh, it's both a personal and a cosmic story. And the cosmic story goes under the name of uh, if, if it has a name, uh, vitalism, the kind of tendency in philosophy to, uh, or popular uh, thinking about uh, the universe to uh, track down this life force, see how it can be cultivated, see how uh, it can be channeled in, in various directions. So this leads me into a, you know, 500 year story of uh, uh these notions of vitality and the importance of uh, spontaneous energy uh, in both the individual life and in the and in the operations of of uh, the universe and there so there are a lot of characters that are preoccupied with this life force uh in themselves and in the universe uh though they discuss it in radically different idioms and that's how the uh, the camp meeting people, the evangelical Protestant revivalists, get into the same book with uh, Wall Street traders and uh, specter- uh, speculators and uh, investors. So uh, to 
I, I, I can give you a quick rundown of the characters in the book, uh, or different kinds of characters who show up. I don't. Uh, I, I start with the indigenous peoples of North America, uh, who have a vision of an animated universe and a sold universe where uh, non-human animals and plants, trees, even rocks and streams can have a spirit enlivening their, uh, them that, that uh, human beings can uh, understand and connect with and indeed need to propitiate in various ways. Uh, you find this uh, among Europeans uh, as well, and I'm particularly interested in the uh, Elizabethan English who populated the North Atlantic seaboard uh, in uh, the uh, 17th to 18th centuries, uh, but also the background in medieval Catholicism, later popular Catholicism, that endows material things with spiritual meaning that connects matter and spirit. And you find that same uh, impulse in evangelical Protestants uh, who are looking for ways to connect with God, the deity, directly, uh, and they find it more often uh, within a budding grove or in the uh, wilderness uh, setting where so many revivals take place uh, than they do uh, in a conventional church. Uh, you find the same impulse to connect body and, and, and soul or body and mind among mesmerists, among psychic healers, among positive thinkers who believe that uh, one can sort of recast one's way uh, in, in, in the cosmos through arranging one's mind uh, in, in a certain uh, framework or, or uh, a certain um, tendency. So William James is a kind of outlier in this tradition because he's, he's not a mindless positive thinker, but he is someone who believes in the power uh, of, of thought uh, to change one's outlook on the world and therefore one's overall psychic and, and even spiritual help. And you find it among finance capitalists. You find it among the, uh, the people that Keynes wrote about. You find it among economists. Uh, ecological thinkers uh, who revalue wildness and like Aldo Leopold, uh, the, the great uh, environmentalist, uh, believe that that we can actually sort of, I, I don't know quite how to put this without sounding too woo-woo or, or uh, new agey, but, uh, but in fact, uh, Leopold suggests we, you know, we, we need to try to uh, recenter ourselves in the universe and recognize uh, that there are ways to, to think uh, like a wolf or even think like a mountain, uh, as he put it, and recognize the inner uh, dependence of all life. It's a, it's a recognition that the universe is alive. And uh, contemporary uh, scientists, uh, everyone ranging from physicists to epigeneticists, botanists and geologists, are also recognizing the sense of scintillation in matter that makes it something other than just inert uh, resources that can be manipulated and mined to human purposes, but but in fact uh, are not sitting still. In fact, uh, what what appears to be uh, solid matter is in fact vibrant with pulsating. Uh, um, 
energy. And, and uh, so there is a, a whole worldview here that takes many different kinds of forms and, uh, and animates, uh, excites a lot of different kinds of people. And I think it's, uh, it remains at the center uh, of a lot of our uh, social thought through uh, the 19th and 20th centuries, even after animal spirits as a concept has disappeared from uh, medical terminology. People used to think that vital energy was carried in tubes uh, through the body in the form of either air or liquid. It wasn't clear what. But once uh, microscopes became common and uh, people began discovering what the insides of the human body actually looked like, uh, they realized that nerves were more uh, more closely analogous to uh, electric wires uh, than to hollow tubes. Uh, but even then, uh, the, the preoccupation with vitality continued to uh, inspire scientists ranging from uh, physicists and psychologists to biologists and, and uh, uh, as I say, epigeneticists. So there's a, a, a worldview here that I'm trying to, to get at that recognize, recognizes the, the, the miraculous aliveness of the world, as uh, uh, Wittgenstein put it. And you can see the relevance to contemporary ecological thought, but, uh, but also even uh, to finance capitalism, as I say. Let's take a brief station break, and we're back in a moment continuing the conversation with Jackson Lears. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And we're continuing the conversation with Jackson Lears, the Board of Governors Distinguished Professor of History at Rutgers University and the editor of Raritan. His books include Something for Nothing, Luck in America, and Fables of Abundance, A Cultural History of Advertising in America. And his latest book is Animal Spirits, The American Pursuit of Vitality from Camp Meeting to Wall Street. Well, going back to the Cree in northern Canada and the Hopi, mm-hmm. actually, in an earlier life, Jackson, I was a film editor and I edited a couple of movies, uh, The Secret Life of Plants and Kuyanis Kutsi, which, was, which, of course, is a Hopi phrase. I don't know whether you ever saw that movie. But, no, um, I didn't. I'd love to, actually. Yeah, well, you should look it up. It's, 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 it, it, uh, I will. It's Secret Life of Plants, it's called. Yeah, and Koyanis Kutsi, which essentially deals with what you're talking about, the life and life out of balance. Right, In the sense right. that the world is not divided into living spirit and dead matter, but rather it's Indeed. spontaneous and ubiquitous, and uh, the universe is alive, which is what yes. your book's yeah. about. And well, of course you're... You have, uh, you're you're an ideal reader, then, it sounds like. You, you're well well prepared to accept these kinds of ideas. And yeah, them. well, indeed. But uh, the, your cast of characters, of course, are so diverse, from John Dunn, Adam Smith, William James, John Maynard Keynes, Norman Mailer, <laughs> 
just tell us about how vitalism could be harnessed. I mean, when you talk about a life force, if you if you've ever seen somebody die, you really do understand at that moment mm-hmm. what a life mm-hmm. force is. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, we're living in such a pessimistic age, and the possibility of a fascist takeover of America is just so frightening. And so much of America seems to be so angry, and of course, mm-hmm. with arms. And I mean, death is easy compared to life. Life is difficult. Is that mm-hmm. a problem that yeah. we have universally? Well, look, I, I think one of, one of the things I, I felt the need to to emphasize in in charting this worldview, this vitalist worldview, is to show. Uh, that it's not entirely benign. That in that in fact it it can be harnessed uh, to very dis- destructive and sinister purposes, and and in fact has been. Um, and I think one can take a start with the more benign versions of how uh, vitality is basically perceived and and uh, admired in darker skinned people. Uh, for example, the Harlem Renaissance was, a, a, you know, a, animated by a kind of fascination with the uh, vitality, especially but not exclusively the sexual vitality of, of African Americans, and they themselves enacted that uh, that vitality for their own pleasure and, and uh, uh, entertainment uh, and edification, but also uh, white people were attracted to it too. So there's a kind of Imperial primitivism there that can be exoticist and it can be can be viewed as as trivial or racist or all the rest, but it recognizes still. Uh, I call it imperial primitivism because there's a a, a longing for the primitive of and and what seems to be missing in the civilized uh, and predominantly white culture. Is, is this kind of spontaneous vitality, this kind of ease and grace uh, in, the, in, in our own bodies? So that's that's you know a, a, a more a more benign cultural use to which uh, vitalism is is harnessed uh, in in literary and, and uh, artistic matters. Um, but, but the really dark side of it, it seems to me, is is the idea of regenerative war and the idea of regeneration through violence. And that this is a, a recurring theme in, in uh, not just in American history, obviously, in European his, history as well. And it certainly hovers uh, you know, behind the history of fascism in, in, uh, in Italy and in Spain and, uh, and ultimately in, in, uh, in Germany as well in the, in the, in the 20th century. Uh, this, uh, this fear that, that somehow uh, under conditions of urban urban uh, commercial modernity, we uh, modern people have, have lost touch with our spontaneous vital selves. And the only way we can recover that vitality uh, is uh, by embracing this kind of this cult of death or near death, you know, this, uh, this, this uh, celebration of, of martial heroism. And that happens in the U.S., as well, going back to uh, um, the uh, the Mexican uh, the Mexican American War back in the 1840s, one finds it uh, already a sense that uh, a kind of torpor, uh, 
and softness and, and uh, de- degeneration has settled over uh, commercial culture and particularly over man- manhood in commercial culture. So uh, the uh, the opportunity to gobble up territory that form- formerly belonged to Mexico is appealing, but also the idea of, of uh, regenerating, reviving masculinity. And you see the same kind of rhetoric uh, at the beginning of the Civil War, but it doesn't last because the war is long and punishing and uh, ultimately is, a, is just a grim slog uh, through piles of corpses. Uh, so it's very hard to maintain that kind of uh, celebration of uh, masculine regeneration, which often appears at the beginning of a war. But you see it in almost every war, certainly in the in, in the 1890s, the Spanish-American War, the turn toward uh, overseas empire for the U.S. Uh, is, is, is full of that kind of, of vitalist rhetoric. Uh, and and uh, one finds it uh, as well, in, you know, at the beginning of World War One and not so much in World War Two, because there was a sense of, you know, that there was a dirty job to be done and it had to be got over with. And that kind of over, over, overran the, uh, the vitalism. Uh, but, but one sees it in, in uh, uh, the post 9-11 uh, uh, comments of, of various uh, intellectuals. Uh, I'm thinking of George Packer, for example, who writes for the New Yorker and the Atlantic now, uh, who basically said, you know, I, I, uh, I was raised by parents who were involved in the anti-war movement during the Vietnam War, uh, and they embraced uh, the slogan, war is unhealthy for, for uh, children and other, uh, other living things, or you know, one of the sen- sentimental anti-war slogans of the time. And he said, and I was, I was brought up this way, but you know, I came to realize that war War might have been unhealthy, but it was fascinating to me. It was, and the, the experience of being at war is is fascinating, and I like it, and I think it makes us a better people. He said this in the immediate wake of of uh, uh, the nine eleven uh, attacks, and, right. and, uh, he, there were and other... he was a supporter of the Iraq War, along with Thomas Absolutely. Friedman and others, and we know Absolutely. how that worked out. And th- this is a this is a tendency that I find kind of appalling people singing the praises of war from the, from the comfort of their keyboards. Uh, and you don't find actual soldiers doing this that often, or people who have actually served in battle. You don't find the sense of, uh, there, there, it, there are times, uh, and, and any, any uh, combat veteran, uh, or many combat veterans, I should say, will, will acknowledge this when there is something exhilarating about the camaraderie under fire or about the intensity of the experience in general. And that's, you know, that's a, that's a germ of vitalism. Uh, but people who really know what it's like tend not to go the whole nine yards into, into celebration. And I think that's, uh, uh, that's a recurrent feature of our, our land, our, our intellectual landscape that I think is, uh, very, very troubling to me and indicative of the, the dark side of, of, uh, of vitalism and how it won't go away. I mean, there's even a vicarious version of it. In fact, it's all, it's almost always vicarious and uh, never more so than in the current war uh, in Ukraine. Uh, when uh, I think there's a, there's a great deal of, of uh, enthusiasm for 
the heroism of the Ukrainian people, which is un- undoubtedly a very real experience for the for the, these Ukrainians and a very horrifying one. But it's being experienced at second hand by Americans and being celebrated uh, in in ways that allow the uh, the war to go on when it might actually be uh, ended, or at least there could be an effort to try to end it through uh, negotiated settlement. And that's just off the charts in the name of uh, sustaining heroic resistance, perhaps to the last Ukrainian. Uh, And this is, again, a a disturbing aspect of of this kind of celebration of vitality at, at a distance and regeneration through violence. Uh, and of course, you mentioned the the, uh, the reactionary politics, like uh, the the fascination with somebody like Trump. And I, I think the term animal magnetism was even used in connection with him and the way he could get whip up crowds into a frenzy. And it was certainly used with the, with his predecessors, among whom I would include uh, not only Mussolini but also Teddy Roosevelt. So we have. We have this tradition of the of the spellbinding orator, uh, who is not necessarily a great orator, but who is willing to say things that appeal viscerally to people and that seem to be avoiding the kind of technocratic banality that dominates so much public discourse in America. Uh, I think a lot of people get bored with that. They get impatient with it, and and they long for something that is more heroic or maybe just more outrageous as in the case of, of Trump and, and as it was in the case of, of Mussolini and Roosevelt. These these were guys who seemed animated by, you know, pure act. You know, they were they were uh, they were just pervaded mm-hmm. by uh, vitality. And uh, and that was very appealing to a lot of people. You can find American journalists gushing over Mussolini well into the 1930s. It's quite remarkable, but there it is. Right. So that's the dark side. Uh, well, we are experiencing the dark side, but just if we could just sum it up in terms of of the political choice the American people are facing uh, between Joe Biden, who is certainly not a great at rhetoric, and Donald Trump and the dark side, as you've just enunciated, it would seem that the choice is, in fact, between uh, life and death. Trump stands for destruction and anger and hatred and American carnage. And Biden is at least trying to deal with the existential threat of global warming and health and wellness and these basic things that you would think in terms of the choice between the life force and the dark side would be simple and clear, but they're not. Well, they're they're not to me anyway. <laughs> I, uh, I, because I would say what's what's what I, I I agree with you that there there were many reasons to vote for for uh, Biden over Trump, and I did. Uh, Trump was plainly unfit to govern and was a menace. Uh, but I also think Biden is embracing uncritically. Uh, a foreign policy stance uh, that is confrontational, uh, where it needs to be cooperative uh, with other major powers, and I would I would begin by by mentioning Russia in that connection, and the uh, the refusal to uh, engage uh, and and or even take seriously the Russian security concerns about the eastward expansion of NATO 
and the arming of countries in Eastern Europe that are very much very close to the Russian borders. One can only imagine how the U.S. would feel were China to start arming Mexico in the same way that uh, Poland and Ukraine and others have been uh, are being armed by the by the U.S. But I would also say the the, the dominant tendency, at least in, um, you know, in the, the immediate crowd surrounding Biden on, on foreign policy matters, uh, is to pick fights with other big countries, whether it's Russia or China. Uh, it's not at all clear what our intentions regarding China are, but we're in a situation. You spoke of global warming, and I think the underlying uh, crisis here is so great and so global that. It can only be addressed through international cooperation, and you can't have international cooperation when you're starting to carve the world up into hostile blocks. The Eurasianists on the one hand, the Atlanticists on the other, the non-aligned in the third place, and this is not looking good for uh, for global warming or for any attempt to address it. Uh, and it seems to me that true global leadership regards, you know, involves the use of diplomacy in a way that the U.S. seems to have forgotten how to practice it. I'm not sure. I also think we've forgotten the nuclear threat completely. And it's not just coming from uh, from Russia. Uh, it's coming from both sides. Uh, and uh, there are U.S. Uh, nuclear, you know, nuclear capable bombers running missions along the Russian border, even even as we speak, uh, and there is a kind of drift toward the possibility of uh, provocation toward escalation toward nuclear war. So nobody wants to talk about these things either. And I think we're in a very strange atmosphere. And Biden, however benign he might see by comparison to uh, to Trump, is is allowing it to happen. So I I, I feel like. True leadership would involve a recognition of what our our real priorities are in terms of international cooperation and not restarting the nuclear arms race, but continuing, as Reagan, of all people, did uh, to try to end it. And uh, that that seems to me to have been a, uh, to be a goal that has been lost to public discourse. And uh, diplomacy involves not not insisting on. Uh, on your your view is the only right one, but on recognizing that you have common interests with people whose uh, whose policies you might deplore, uh, whose actions you might find reprehensible in certain ways, but who nevertheless share common interests with you. And the common interests we have with the Russians in this case, the other major nuclear superpower, uh, is a, is avoiding nuclear war, not escalating toward it. Uh, which both sides seem to be uh, prepared to do. So I find this uh, a very troubling way that, uh, and, and it's interesting because vitalism, uh, you know, is 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 a way of <coughs> tapping tapping into the kind of longings that animate war fever uh, and hostility uh, between countries. Um, but it's not really what's what's required. It's not the kind of neutral technician mentality that's required uh, to operate drones or to, or to push uh, the buttons that will launch uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. It's uh, uh, that kind of enthusiasm uh, has no place in the actual making of modern warfare, which is often done at, at great distance. So 
I think the the the, the real need to uh, to revive uh, a vitalist point of view, it seems to me, is in the openness to the aliveness of the world that Wittgenstein and others celebrated this and the recognition that we're all on this planet together and we have to learn to get along with other species as well as other kinds of human beings with whom we disagree often violently. And uh, this is, uh, this to me is the benign version of vitalism that seems to me to be coming into uh, ecological thinking as well as other, other forms of uh, uh, contemporary scientific research. Well, the history of the Cold War has never really been thoroughly written, particularly how many near misses we had and how close we came on Absolutely. many, many occasions to the entire destruction Absolutely. of the planet. And we've had, to some extent, in the post-Soviet period, the worst of both worlds, where you have psychological disarmament, at the same time you don't have physical disarmament. And as you point <laughs> out, when you have tensions between the superpowers, like over Ukraine... And Putin, by the way, has put his nuclear forces on alerts on many occasions. All the while, having dodged the bullet of nuclear war during the Cold War, which certainly the threat hasn't gone away, you have the additional threat of global warming. So it's a one-two punch, really, and we're not really seriously dealing with either problem. I agree entirely. Well, on that cheerful note. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my 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 reason for writing the books was to the book. (laughs) Seems like more than one sometimes, but the the uh, was to suggest the the dare I say the vitality of this tradition, uh, this way of thinking about the world, and the many benign and necessary uses it can have in promoting recognition of what we have in common with the other creatures, both like and unlike ourselves, who live on this planet. So uh, I still think there's that side of this tradition that needs to be uh, unearthed and uh, reconstructed as best we can. We've got to be able to tolerate more than one one apocalypse at, at uh, at a time, uh, because we are looking at two different possibilities, apocalyptic possibilities. So, uh, and that's a little overwhelming, but at the same time, it could be, uh, dare I say, energizing. One can only hope at this point. Well, Jackson Lees, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's my pleasure, and thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Jackson Lears, who's the Board of Governors Distinguished Professor of History at Rutgers University and the editor of Raritan. His books include Something for Nothing, Luck in America, and Fables of Abundance, A Cultural History of Advertising in America. And his latest book out next week is Animal Spirits, The American Pursuit of Vitality from Camp Meeting to Wall Street. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic 
and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America My quiet voice was saying something to me An angel song about the home Oh